Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. In this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Jenny May Howard. She got her bachelor's in communication sciences and disorders with a minor in psychology from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale in 2009 and her master's degree in 2011 at SIUC as well. She's worked in skilled nursing outpatient setting for all 11 years in the profession. She also works part-time in the early intervention setting and PRN acute care. She is trained in MDTP, myofascial release, and other manual techniques in dysphagia, amp care, and fort. She currently serves on the program advisory board and guest lectures at SIUC. Outside of being an SLP, she loves to run and leads a local running club for young girls. She was a sprinter hurdler on the track team while at SIUC and also finds joy in singing and leading worship. Jenny also writes, I'm just a regular SLP. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a professor. I haven't developed or written anything, but I just love being an SLP. I love helping people. I love connecting to people. And I want to make sure that I not only know how to treat their medical problem, but that I also know how to make them feel seen, heard, understood, and accepted. I just love Jenny for this. This was such a great conversation. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Jenny. Hello, Teresa. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I am extremely excited to be here. Yay! I'm so excited to have you. Yay. All right. Well, tell the people who you are. So my name is Jenny Howard. I am a speech and language pathologist in the Southern Illinois area. I am in a very rural area. I cover the skilled nursing facility, an outpatient setting, a supportive living setting. On the side, I work 
part-time or as needed in the acute care setting and do a little bit of dabbling in the early intervention setting. So I'm, a, I'm pretty well everywhere and a little bit of everything. I have been a, an SLP for 11 years and just find that it's exactly where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. I feel extremely blessed that um, I was led into this profession and that I get to help people every single day. So I find great joy in that. I love that. I love that so much. And that is why you're here, Jenny. So yeah, I know we, we were talking about, you know, I need, we need to get some more people on the podcast. Who should we invite? And I said, oh my gosh, I said, yeah, I would love to have Jenny because I feel like, you know, we, we have so many wonderful, amazing, everybody's amazing that comes on this podcast. But like you said, a lot of people are very, very specialized. And that that's something that I don't regret being really specialized, but I miss not knowing more about like other topics. And I just, I have so much respect for you because you're like a super generalist, like not just a generalist, but like a generalist across like a bajillion different settings. And I just, I have the utmost respect for that because I know that's so hard to wear that many hats. And, you know, it's, it's, I I don't want to say it's easy to, to just be a specialist because you really just hone in on one topic. But I I always say that I just have so much respect for, for generalists because there's so much that you have to know. And I don't want that word generalist to be taken as a negative connotation. I mean it as a utmost compliment. So please. No, I I understand that completely. I always kind of refer to myself as like a general practitioner that I know a little bit about a whole lot of different things. And if I have someone coming to see me at the outpatient clinic in something that I'm not as well versed in, I love that I have so many resources that I can go and you know, take a quick course or read an article or do a training to feel like I'm well-versed enough to really give them the treatment that they deserve. And that's always being a generalist or doing a lot of things has always been one of my, uh, I don't know if it's a problem, but one of the things that I have done growing up, I, I was involved in everything. I did every sport. I was on every committee, uh, every group. And so I've always had trouble zoning in on exactly what it was. I just like everything. And um, I find that in this setting as well, I think it would be cool to be a specialist. I get kind of jealous when I hear people talk on topics where they're so versed and they know so much. And I think, oh, I want to be that person. But then um, I love knowing that I can help almost anyone who comes to see me. Uh, There are times when I get that case and I'm like, you know, I don't know that I'm the best therapist for you. And I like that I have the ability to say that. Let's find you someone who might be a better fit for you with your specific issue. So that way I know that you are getting the treatment that you deserve. Um, Because I don't want to be that therapist that thinks I can do it all because I know that I can't. But I'm I'm always learning. And I think that that's one of the best things about this this profession is that we just get to keep learning and I'm a big nerd. So that's a good thing for me. I I love it. Well, what I love too, Jenny, I mean, you, like you said, you get to treat itty bitty babies all the way to, you know, geriatric end of life. And what a beautiful spectrum that is to work with patients and have that career fulfillment of helping so many patients across the continuum. I just, I love that so much. Yes. And I'm just, you know, I told you earlier, I, I was nervous about doing the podcast because I'm not a specialist. And I thought to myself, who wants to hear me talk? Why? I don't really have anything special to share, but I am 
maybe the regular listener. I'm that normal everyday SLP who is going to work and trying to juggle life. And um, I don't always have time to read all of the research articles or do all of the trainings, but um, I'm here and I'm doing the best that I can, trying to provide the best therapy I can. And I love listening to the podcast. So I was super excited to come chat with you. Awesome. Oh, I love it, Jenny. All right, let's let's dive in a little bit. I would love I would love to sort of hear the history of how you've gotten to where you are today. You know, did you did you think you would always work with all different patient populations or did you really hone in? Because I think what I think is so funny is that, you know, I've been in this profession long enough that I've, you know, had friends and colleagues that have been in it long enough, too. And I think it's so funny, you know, to hear people say like, oh, my gosh, this is my dream setting. It's where I want to work. And then they get there and they're like, it's not what I thought. I miss the old setting or, you know, I just, I I love, you know, people that are vulnerable and share sort of those conversations. So I would love to hear if you had like a dream setting and if you expected to work in six different settings. (laughs) So, you know, in graduate school, I thought that being in the NICU would be the coolest job ever. Uh, But unfortunately in the area that I'm in getting a fellowship in a NICU was extremely difficult. And so I thought, well, maybe later at some point in time, and I took a, my clinical externship at a nursing facility. Um, I knew that I didn't really want to work in the schools. Not that that was something I didn't like. I just felt that that wasn't going to be where I ended up. Um, And I loved the medical aspect of everything we were learning in school. I had been around skilled nursing facilities in my youth um, with 4-H and volunteering. And so I I knew that setting, I was familiar with it. It didn't intimidate me. And so when I started my clinical fellowship there, I instantly fell in love with that and had a great mentor in that setting and a great rehab director, which I still have. And so I was able to get that that introduction that I feel like is, you know, if you don't get that in grad school or early in your career, you know, it might be intimidating um, to go into that setting and know how to manage that. But had had interaction in the outpatient setting in graduate school as well. And just thought like all these people I get to interact with and they're so interesting and they have so much to share. And I have so many ways that I can help them. And I just, I fell in love with that. And so um, I, I guess I kind of knew that that was where I wanted to be. And when I got there, it just solidified it even more. Um, I've always wanted to be in the hospital. And so I started doing some PRN work. I thought that was really interesting and just trying to get my feet wet because I didn't have a lot of experience with that in graduate school or in a fellowship. And so just trying to get a feel for that as well. But my heart is absolutely in the skilled nursing facility and all the good that we can do there. I love it. You're speaking to my soul, Jenny. Yeah. (laughs) I like working with kids and I get some kids like your typical language processing and articulation at the outpatient clinic. Um, and I, I enjoy working with them. They're, they're fun, but it's definitely not where I would say like my heart pulls me. And so that's where, that's where I am at the nursing home. So, yeah. So you're, you work in other sections of the nursing home too, right? Like assisted living or independent living. Talk a little bit about how that all transpired. Yes. So we have our, I, I guess the facility that I'm a part of has unattached outpatient, supportive living, skilled nursing, 
Uh, we have a memory care unit. We have long-term, we have uh, short-term to home. So we have a wide array of people, even just in that setting without the outpatient. And so I am able to work with uh, lots of different types of dysphagia, uh, lots of different diagnoses related to stroke and dementia. And so I really feel like person-centered care can thrive in all of these settings. Um, with the supportive living patients, I'm able to help them maybe manage their finances a little bit longer in that situation. Um, I'm able to help them um, with their, I just had a dysphagia patient over there that we were able to get instrumentation done for her to determine that, hey, she's not really aspirating like they thought she was just because she was coughing when she was taking her pills. And then at the nursing facility, because we have short stay residents who might be suffering from cognition issues because of anesthesia or um, medication impairment, all the way up to, and I can do higher level activities with them, all the way um, up to my memory care residents who I'm working on, you know, dietary changes in their, in, I guess, not dietary changes, but like environmental changes for their dysphagia. I know you just had a, a great episode on dysphagia in the dementia population and, you know, implementing those practices with those residents or helping them adjust to life on a memory care unit, helping staff understand their, their needs and how we can help them feel more at home in a place that, you know, hasn't always been home for them. So it takes a lot of coordination. I said I, I have a great rehab manager, um, and I know that that's not always the case. So I feel extremely lucky to have that both at my supportive living or my nursing home and my outpatient, who they kind of let me manage my own schedule, which is really nice because then I know, okay, on this day I have four outpatients, which means that I need to schedule my supportive living or my nursing home patients on a different day. So that way I can manage my schedule a little bit better. And that allows me freedom to, you know, be able to see people for the amount of treatment session that they need or see them in an early session if they need mornings, things like that. So it, it does take a lot of, a lot of uh, calendar and, and time management to make sure that I'm, I'm getting everywhere I need to be when I need to be. Are there, are there any things that you've, and I don't want to, conflict is not the right word, but any, you know, things that you've had to work through with your management as far as time management or things like advocating for new programs and things like that? Yeah, I have found that, you know, we're experts in communication. And so I have found that when I go and I, and I explain why I need something, management, dietary, um, management of a facility. When I'm explaining why something's important, I really haven't had much pushback. Um, and I think that that's just really important. A lot of times we, we walk in and we're like, I need this, um, or I need more time off of my productivity. And so I have found that when I explain why, that they're usually really understanding or they're able to talk with me about where we can meet in the middle with, with productivity. I know that that comes up all the time in the skilled nursing facility and can be a real struggle for people. 
I have found that by having good relationships with CNAs, you know, certified nursing assistants and dietary and nurses, that I can improve my productivity just by having good relationships with them to help me get patients ready or help me, you know, if I'm walking down the hall saying, oh, I need so-and-so at, uh, in about 30 minutes, would you mind if you can make sure she's gone to the bathroom or she's up where I can get to her? And that's been really, really beneficial for me. In relation to like programs or instrumentation, uh, I have found that, again, just saying why and understanding that I'm going to need time to do education. I'm going to need time to do training. And I haven't ever had any pushback to that, which has been really nice. Now, carryover is hard sometimes because we know a, a con or a difficulty in the skilled nursing facility is turnover yep. with staff. And so I feel like sometimes I'm doing a lot of training over and over again, but I know that it's important. And so I just explain, you know, why it's needed. And it seems like they're able to implement it pretty well. Good. Awesome. I love that, Jenny. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I think that I say talking about the why a lot. I, I recently, um, or uh, patients I've had who might need a lot of oral care. Um, you know, this is one of those things where I'm saying, hey, this person may need oral care four times a day, which is a lot, which is asking a lot of a nursing home staff. And I remember the, the CNA looking at me and saying, four times? I don't have time for that. And I said, well, let me tell you why it's important. And when I explained that, that about the oral bacteria and the pneumonia risk, and they said, oh, well, if what I can do can help her get better, well, yeah, that makes sense. And so it was like I immediately had buy-in. Um, you know, if I when I just asked them to do something, it was almost like, oh, you're making me busier. You're giving yeah, me more yes. work. But they're working in that setting because they want to help people too, just like we do. And so when I explained how it's helping the resident, I I usually see a lot better buy-in and a lot better carryover. Yeah. I love that. I think that's sort of how we all operate, right? You know, we don't just want to be told to do something. We want to know why is this for the, you know, greater good of the community? Is this going to actually help the patient? So I know it seems like such a simple, small task, but it's so overlooked. We all do yes. it. Yes. That's why I wanted to, I wanted to say that because I, I have seen other therapists in my, in my work experience kind of struggle with that, with getting that feedback. And I'd say, have you tried this? And they'll say, oh, I, I, I guess I hadn't phrased it that way. And so sometimes the simplest of phrasing can really help, help with that. Yeah. All right. I think one of the biggest things that in my career I have learned later is through John Ashford's uh, Three Pillars of Pneumonia from Aspiration. That article has been one that I have referred to over and over again and has been so helpful in my, in all of my settings, you know, knowing that I have a patient come to see me and they said, oh, they were, I was told that I'm aspirating and then it's going to cause pneumonia and I'm going to die. And that seems extreme, but I had someone tell me exactly that. And I said, well, let's look at all of these factors. And, and they were scared to drink their coffee in the morning, you know? And so I was able to show them the uh, pneumonia risk predictor chart and say, okay, so we know that you have this, 
based on your instrumental swallow evaluation, but you don't have this and you don't have this, you know, so they had good oral care. Um, their body was generally, they were a generally healthy person, but they had aspiration. And so through that education and through that knowledge that we have from, you know, uh, Dr. Ashford and Langmore and, and all of those articles, I was able to make them feel a little bit safer, you know, understand that their risk was still there, but less because they, they didn't have all of these other factors that research has now told us help contribute to aspiration pneumonia. So not just jumping right to, well, you have aspiration, so you're going to get pneumonia. And that has been so helpful in my clinical practice and helped me make more evidence-based and sound decisions for my patients instead of making decisions based on fear. Like, oh, I see you're aspirated. I'm afraid you're going to get this. Well, I know that because this research, that probably isn't going to happen. And uh, I know that uh, George Barnes and Doreen Benson are doing that uh, research right now for the mathematical probability. I was just reading this article. Um, I, I hope I'm saying this correctly. The Bayes theorem. Am I saying that right? I'm not sure. It was, so this article just came out in June. I'm glad someone else is handling the mathematical part because that is definitely not my strong suit. Uh, but just they're looking at understanding the combination of all of these variables to put a um, percentage on someone's aspiration risk. And so that way we have, you know, that, that actual clinical evidence, which I think will be so helpful that we can say this person has a slight risk of developing pneumonia and will just allow us to make more clinically sound decisions instead of just depending on that specific therapist skill, which might be good or might be not as good. Yeah. yeah. So um, like I said, I'm glad they're creating a tool so I don't have to actually do the math. <laughs> I know that that'll be really helpful. And so I look forward to uh, hearing more about that as they're learning more and doing more research. Yeah. I think one thing about that too is, is it, it almost gives the patient more control of their care. I think, you know, that was one thing I just, that really broke my heart all my years in skilled nursing is, you know, why is this happening to me? Or is, you know, this cancer growing or, you know, like, I feel like patients in these situations want answers, but they also want to do anything within their control to help themselves, you know? And I, and I think that's something I appreciated so much about this patient population was just, so many of them are so driven to improve and help themselves. And I think by having this evidence, you know, brushing your teeth, getting up and walking around, these are things that you can do. These are things that are in your control that can help with your overall health status that can help to, you know, prevent pneumonia. And I think, like you said, just, you know, telling people the why behind things can be so powerful. And I think, especially for this population, just putting some tools back into their pocket that they can do to help themselves really means a lot. Absolutely. And being able to help ourselves is one thing that we need as people. I was before COVID, I was getting ready to start actually um, a program called Purposeful Living because within my facility, because I had found that people, I had a resident tell me, I don't know why I'm still alive. There's no reason for me to get up every day. And it broke my heart. And I knew that I had the ability to help change that for him. And so through this program that I'm still 
working on sort of on the side. I want to get it going. Um, there's just been a few hurdles the last couple of years is that we're able to give people independence and give them tasks that help them feel like they have a purpose and that they have a reason to wake up in the morning. And I think that that's extremely important in the skilled nursing facility. I think it's important for everyone, but I see it so often in that setting because so many of their individual rights and abilities have been kind of stripped when they go to the nursing home. And I love that our profession really strives for that person-centered care. So, you know, we can explain to them, but like you said, if you are doing your oral care, that's going to decrease this risk and we can have our thin liquids. We can have the, you know, whatever type of food it is that you're wanting to eat and giving them that ability to make that change in their own life is very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. With the skilled nursing facility and with the outpatient clinic, the clinical swallow evaluation um, is, you know, kind of where, where we do the chunk of our work. And I remember as I was learning about what the clinical swallow evaluation can't do, I was like, well, why am I even doing that? Right. I, I think we've all been there. I think we've all had those thoughts. Yeah. Yes. Like, what am I even doing? And I found that one of the articles that I really enjoyed was by James Coyle. Uh, and it's the clinical evaluation, a necessary tool for the dysphagia loop. And I loved how he pointed out, like, yes, instrumentation is needed. It's important. This is bread and butter. But our clinical swallow evaluation is important too. And it has a lot of really good pieces to it that are important to the puzzle. And it gets our brain moving and problem solving. I kind of feel like, because I send a lot of my patients for instrumental evaluations, and I feel like I'm the first couple pieces of the puzzle. And so I can do some of this first work to make hypotheses or to you know, do the clinical swallow evaluation to assess that parts of the oral face that we can see to give the clinician who's doing the clinic, the instrumental exam that head start on what they're going to see. So they don't have to spend time doing that, or I know that they don't have time to do those things. So I'm able to provide them with this information in a, like a, a head start. So I have found that my clinical swallow evaluation can be useful even though it can't tell me everything I might like to know, it is still important. Um, and I, I recently did some training on, you know, super skilling that clinical swallow evaluation to make sure that I'm giving the patient exactly what they need in that evaluation um, to make sure that I'm covering all my bases and have really started to build those tools of the, the swallow evaluation to make sure that I'm covering covering every aspect um, between the cranial nerve exam and the medication review, understanding lab values, you know, doing the oral health assessment. I like the test of masticating and swallowing solids, the Yale swallow protocol, you know, there's a bunch. And then using um, patient reported outcome measures. I've really started using those in the last couple of years to help with reporting on my um, evaluations. And so uh, recently I started, I just got approval to order some peak flow meters awesome. and testing for cough strength, which has been really beneficial in my evaluations and, and with my patients. And so 
you know, just understanding that although there are limitations, that our clinical swallow evaluation is still really important and we we can do a lot with it. But I, I'm sure that there, like you said, I think we've all felt like that. Uh, I saw a quote, and I, I don't know that I'm saying this person's name right, but Colleen Patrick Gordieu, and she said, don't do nothing because you can't do everything. Do something, anything. And so that I like how that ties in. You know, I thought, well, I can't do it all. So why am I even doing this? Yeah. But don't do nothing because you can't do everything. We can still do a lot with that evaluation and still be really beneficial, whether it's at the nursing home or the outpatient clinic, and then ask for or request that instrumentation as needed. So I think we can be beneficial in that way. I, I completely agree, Jenny. I completely agree. Are there, I know you just said that you've recently gotten some peak flow meters ordered. Is there anything else sort of in the last few years that you've added to your clinical swallow exam that really changed the game for you or really gave you so much more insight than something that you were previously using? I would definitely say my cranial nerve exam. And I was using it in part, but not as a whole. And finding some good charts to use that I can just go through and, and quickly check, have everything in front of me. I, I It's part of my part of my clipboard for my evaluation that I'm able to more consistently use that. I think that's been a game changer for me instead of use pieces here and there. I I wasn't consistently using it like I needed to. And then I also think the patient reported outcome measures, using those has really been beneficial because the patient might not always show improvement on those standardized measures. And this goes for dysphagia or for aphasia, cognition. Um, I, I'm just using those all the time because it's able to show like, okay, this person is getting better or they're reporting less issues. They're reporting that speaking with others is more fluent or is easier. And so that is, is able, I'm able to put that in my documentation, even though maybe that standardized test isn't showing as much improvement as we would like. It's not functional. It's not real life in most cases. And real life is what we're trying to improve. So I put just as much uh, stock in those as I am putting in our standardized assessment sometimes. I I totally agree. I think, yeah, I, I feel like to me, those changed a lot about my practice was when I started using a lot more of those and just gives you so much more insight into what's important to the patient too, which I think sometimes is left out of our standardized assessments is, you know, is this what's really important to the patient? Is this something that's culturally appropriate for them? Is this something that is, you know, of their values? And so I think that's something that we've all gotten a lot more exposure to and a lot more, you know, realizing that those things do sort of matter a lot more than we originally were taught. Absolutely. I, and I like how you said, like, what's important to the patient, because through those questionnaires, we're able to understand, well, it's not important for me to talk with people that I don't know, because I don't really do that. Or, you know, I, I love to ask the question, what does a perfect day look like for you? Or what do you love to do? Those tell me a lot of things. When I ask someone, well, tell me about a typical day. Sometimes people struggle to answer that question. And so I might say, what do you love? Or what is, uh, what is your, what do you enjoy most? What brings you joy? What brings you happiness? 
And um, that's when I really find that they give me the answers of the things that we need to work on. And, and so I think that it helps us to be better about that person-centered care and not just writing those generic goals that you know, are stuck in your brain and you want to put down, making sure that those goals are actually relevant to them and their daily life and, and what they need. When I think of those, um, you know, the, the neuroplasticity too, and things like, is this relevant? Is this salient? You know, is this something that's important to the patient? How many times have we written goals that we thought because this is what we were taught that this is this progression that the patient is supposed to take. And that in the meantime, they're mad at us because they don't care. They don't want to work on those things. And we're like, but you have to work on those things. And then you stop and think about it. And you're like, why do they have to, they really don't. We just made it up and said they have to, you know? So exactly, exactly. Patient buy-in is so much better when they're working on things that they want to do or things that make sense to them. And so if it's, remembering, I I worked recently with a lady um, with aphasia, being able to name her grandchildren, because that was hard. And it was upsetting her that she couldn't come up with their names. And so that was one of our goals. And it's functional, and it's helped her and, and she feels like, okay, I can pick up a phone, and I can at least get out their name. Yeah. And so it's those kinds of goals that I feel like make the biggest difference in their lives. But might not necessarily show a huge difference on their standardized assessment. Yeah. But I think on the flip side of that, Jenny, I, I have a patient and I'll never forget this either. I had a man that I, you know, thought, okay, we should, you know, name family members, same things. You know, he had, had aphasia and, you know, I'd have him go through and name family members and things like that. And he just like, he was just angry. He didn't like doing it. I just thought he didn't like me. I thought he didn't like the therapy. And finally, one day he just said like, why do I have to keep doing this? And I, you know, I, I don't remember what my response was, but he was like, I don't have a good relationship with my family. I don't want to keep talking about oh. these people every day. And I was like, oh my God. Like to me, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so awful of me to assume that this is something he would want to talk about and want to practice. And that was sort of one of those huge like moments for me where I learned, okay, you need to ask the patient what they want, what's important to them, what they want to discuss, because if I didn't like my family, I wouldn't want to talk about them every day either. So, yeah. And that's so hard. I think it comes from maybe our personal preferences too. Like I have a good relationship with my family. So for me, that would be something I would want to work on. But, you know, recognizing that, yeah, not everybody is me. And so people have different desires and goals. And uh, that's, that's hard to remember because we're all working from a place of personal experience. And I think that's where a lot of our clinical, our clinical communication skills come from, that personal experience. And so, I, I, but I do think that's important to remember. And, and I know we all have those moments that help, okay, next time this is what I'm going to do. But I think it's important to remember that we're all learning and we're all going to make mistakes and we're all going to go into that evaluation and say the wrong thing or maybe write the wrong goal. And that'll help us next time. Um, (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I used to get so worried about that. And, and now I just try to remind myself that, you know, I am a person who is going to make mistakes and then remember that in my relationships with nurses and with doctors, you know, knowing that I had an experience once where a nurse did something I had told her that wasn't ideal. 
And I walked away kind of frustrated, like, I can't believe she did that, you know. And then I turned, I stopped and I turned myself around and I thought, okay, Jenny, you can be a jerk or you can make this a teaching moment. And so I went back and I talked about why this wasn't the best option and what we could do differently next time. And she was like, oh, I'm so glad that you told me I had no idea. And so, you know, maybe I had told her before, that's okay. It doesn't matter. We make mistakes. And so now the next time it, something popped up, she came to me and said, Hey, I'd like your input. And so I was able to use, instead of get frustrated and walk away, stomp in my feet, I was able to use that communication, remind myself like, Hey, you make mistakes too. And she can be a better nurse in this instance. Um, if I just have a little bit of kindness, a little bit of empathy. And I feel like empathy is so important in our field. It's one of the things I guest lecture at my my old university um, in Carbondale from time to time. And I love talking to the counseling class because I feel like, you know, our skill set is important. Yeah. We have to have the skills to be a good clinician. But I feel like our ability to have empathy is like right up there with our skill set. And I have I have heard that. I think it was in an article. I can't quote it, so I, I don't want to say for sure, but that our ability to empathize with patients directly relates to their their progress in therapy. And I had a former uh, former dysphagia patient of mine had passed away. And his wife wrote a very sweet note to me. And I live in a small town, so you kind of know everybody. You know, it's a town of like five thousand people. So I know most people here. And in the note, she wrote that, and I haven't memorized that your upbeat personality and caring attitude gave him the courage to try again. You know, she didn't write that your expert clinical skills were, you know, he went from NPO to a full regular diet um, after our therapy. So the clinical skills were there, but that empathy and that relationship and that rapport directly related to him saying, I think I can do this. I can try. I can go to therapy. And I think that was a huge component to his to his therapy outcome. So I think as we're building those, I know they call them soft skills, but I think that they are so important to our daily therapy activities. And um, I love building those relationships with those those patients. I think it's just a huge part of our job and one of the the most fun part. Yeah. I I couldn't agree more, Jenny. I think, I think you nailed it there. You know, it's, it's of course so important to know our clinical skills, but I think there's so much weight that needs to be put on empathy and caring and relationship building and just getting that buy-in with, with our patients. I just, you know, I've had so many experiences with my, with my son and I know I talk about it a lot, but it really changed everything for me and the way that I practice too, because I just, you know, you have doctors come in and just say, do this, do this, they recommend this, and then they leave, you know, and they don't explain why, or they don't, you know, is this important to you? Is this something that goes along with your family values? You know, maybe let's just try it. And if it doesn't work out, then we'll make a different plan. And I think there just has to be a lot more flexibility that, that we don't, I think, extend to ourselves. You know, we think we have to recommend the right plan right away. That's what the patient has to do. And it's going to work. And sometimes it just doesn't. And it involves some back and forth. It involves some, you know, give and take some negotiation, some, Hey, you know, if you can try this, you know, let's try this. 
let's see where it goes. If it doesn't work out, it's okay. You know, we'll, we'll swerve, but I think there's so much more to be done there that we give ourselves credit for. Absolutely. I had someone tell me one time that they said, it's one thing to know how to treat a person who has dysphagia, maybe a person with Parkinson's who has dysphagia. It's another thing to sit on the other side of the table when they tell you that they weren't able to eat their favorite food at Thanksgiving dinner with everyone as they have tears in their eyes. Because swallowing, eating, it's essential to what we do. I mean, not only to live, but it's a part of how we celebrate. It's a part of how we mourn. It's a, what we do when we're bored. <laughs> it's, it's such a part of our lives. And so to be able to know how to say, okay, I know how to clinically treat you. That's important. We need to be able to do that. But to also know what to say when that person says, I couldn't eat my favorite food and I have to watch everybody eat. Yeah. That's, that's huge. And to be able to empathize with them is so important. And like you said, I know that you, you know, dealt with that firsthand with your son. And I'm sure that that was, I've heard in your previous podcast, you know, things people did well and things people did not so well. And, um, you know, just such a learning experience for everyone, I think. Yeah. So I know we talked about earlier, we can't possibly know everything, but I do feel very fortunate that I currently have the privilege to attend a lot of different trainings to grow those tools in my toolbox. I know, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you think, well, I don't have that privilege right now. Like I was you at one point in time, you can't take off work traveling to continuing education courses is expensive. Maybe you're just dealing emotionally with other things. Like I've been there and I understand that completely. I understand that going to trainings, paying for trainings is a luxury and a privilege. Um, And you can still do quality therapy without having, you know, all of these certifications or, or doing all of these trainings. There are still so many ways to learn and to improve our skills. Um, that don't involve tons of money and travel. Um, but I made a wish list at the start of my career and I just said, okay, this year I'm going to budget so that way I can go to one. Or and then the next year, maybe I can go to two. And I'm just slowly marking off things that I those tools, those trainings, those gold standard things that I want to be able to do. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that you don't have to do them all right now. And that's how I felt. I need to do them all. I need to get them all done in one year. And it's just not feasible. And so don't feel like that. If you're that therapist, don't feel like that has to be you. Doing trainings little by little is going to help you. And you're going to learn through practice. So I think that's important. But some of my favorite trainings um, that I feel like have been most beneficial for me as a clinician um, are, you know, I recently uh, got trained in AMP care. McNeil dysphagia therapy program, uh, myofascial release and manual therapy for dysphagia management, respiratory muscle strength training for IMST and EMST. I feel like through those trainings, they've really just provided me a deeper and more in-depth knowledge of anatomy, muscle function, you know, overall exercise science. Our field is so large they can't possibly cover all of that in graduate school. And so I want to make sure that I fully understand what I'm treating. Because if I'm just giving exercises and don't understand how muscles work or what muscles I'm even targeting or what 
type of muscles they are, I'm not really giving my patients the best service. And so I feel like what these trainings have done for me is help improve that knowledge. Um, not even necessarily the, the treatment itself, just helping that knowledge in my, um, you know, in my therapy toolbox. I know that uh, a funny story I have is I started using rate of perceived exertion scales after listening to one of the podcasts. I think it was um, Dr. Carnaby who talked about it. And uh, I was like, oh my gosh, we should be using this. You know, I'm a runner and and a lifter. And so, you know, I understand that in my world of running, like I should totally use this in my speech therapy world. And the first time I had a physical therapist overhear me talking about this with a patient, they were like, what are you doing? <laughs> That's our world. And so, you know, understanding that we work with muscles too, and it's it, that we can use it and be beneficial for our practice. So I love using that RPE. Yeah. What, what's so funny that I was recently talking with a friend who is a PT and he was saying, you know, and the sort of the way that PTs look at it is you're given a license to treat, you know, that's what you go to grad school, you get a license, you, you, you pass your boards or whatever they do, and you get a license to treat, but then it's up to you to go on and take further trainings in the areas that you need more information in. So it's very much, you know, in PT, it's very, you know, so it's very general in grad school, but then it's, you're really encouraged to con- continue going on and, you know, get certifications in specific areas that you want more information in. And, you know, to me, I just thought, you know, that sort of makes sense. I don't know why we think as SLPs, like we should learn everything in grad school because we know that's not possible, you know, and, but then on the flip side, I'm, I'm like you, you know, I want to take all the courses. I want to know all the things. And I just sort of, I, I told myself like maybe four or five years ago, like you can do it all, Teresa, just not all at once. And that's something that I tell myself all the time. <laughs> like if there's five courses that I want to take, sure, I can take them all, but it might be over a five-year span. It might not be all in the next five days. So yes, no, I think that's great. You could do it all, just not all at the same yeah. time. And I struggle with that yeah. so much, just in life in general. I love to do it all. And I think, you know, being able to, to listen to webinars, being able to um, read articles for continuing ed, you know, has really helped me to not have to travel all the time, um, to not have to pay the expensive flight, you know, airline tickets. And that has helped too, that, that ability to get access to continuing ed without traveling is growing. And I love that, you know, thank you, internet. Thank you, progression of society. You know, I think that that is great that we can do that now because it it's easy that, you know, I, I have an evaluation and I get that pre intake, you know, my out, the ladies in the, the office at the outpatient building, you know, they've worked with me for so long. I've worked with the same company for 11 years. So it's really nice that we have that relationship. They can say, okay, Jenny's going to want to know this. I need to ask these questions. So that way I can look at that intake form and be like, oh, I have a person coming in with, you know, muscle tension dysphagia or muscle tension dysphonia. And I can say, okay, I'm going to, I took a course on that. I'm going to go back and refresh that. I'm going to go back and, you know, review my treatment plan or those treatment goals uh, that, so I can feel prepared when I go in for that person uh, because yeah, I, I wanted, I want to do this training and I want to do that training. And, and uh, so just knowing that we have time, we have time. You don't have to be an expert. 
you have the skills and you have the knowledge to be a good therapist, we often know way more than we realize we do. And, um, and so I think we can be really beneficial without being an expert. And I, I was talking to my mom about coming on the podcast and, and just being a regular person. And I know you're all regular people, but I, you know, I have you up here on this pedestal and I'm just a, a lowly regular speech therapist. And, and she said, Jenny, I just want you to remember, so just be yourself. She said, no, you're not a researcher. You're not a developer of anything special, you know, yet you haven't written a book or anything like that. She's like, but she's like, you're special in your own way as a therapist. And she's like, I see that other people see that. She said, so just be yourself. And I think that that's great advice for our therapy sessions as well. I don't have to pretend like I'm the most versed in dysphagia. I know I'm not, and I never will be, but I do know that I have good knowledge in that area. I have good treatment knowledge. I have the ability to be a good therapist. And so I just have to remember to be me, to be myself. And you've and helped I think a crap that, ton of patients, Jenny. Don't, don't ever forget that either. That's, that is your uh, yes, purpose. Yes. And, and I, I find joy in that. You know, I, uh, I would love to develop something one day or write a book and maybe that will happen one day. But right now I find joy in helping the people in my community and helping um, nurses and people I work with. Uh, I love doing guest lecturing at the universities and being a part of their clinical board for their courses. I love going and talking to the high schoolers in my community because we need more speech therapists and we need people who aren't afraid or worried about going into the nursing home. You know, I, I think when I go and talk to the graduate school students, I had, I love talking about the nursing facility because they kind of like, look at me like, oh no, that's not something I want to do. That was me. That was me. That was me. And I love like this one girl, she came up to me later and she said, you know what? I may actually try to do some PR and work in the nursing home. Like you made it sound really cool. (laughs) So, you know, if I can be influential in that way, I find joy in that too. And so I think we all find joy in different places and just like our patients, and, um, you know, we can work towards work towards whatever goals we set for ourselves, just like our patients do. Yeah. Awesome. I love this so much, Jenny. This was such a great conversation. Thank you for being you and not being anybody else. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I have had so much fun and you just, you just helped me to just feel really comfortable. So that way I can come on and share my story about what I do in speech therapy world and uh, the kind of patients that I see. So that way maybe others will feel led to go into that setting or to take on multiple settings and uh, recognize that they can be, they can be the best therapists for the people that come to see them as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Jenny. Thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. 
As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.